0: You're listening to a podcast from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace.
1: Good morning. I'm Jessica Matthews, president of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And it's uh, my great pleasure to, uh, to welcome you this morning for a conversation on uh, how best to realize the enormous potential of India's 1.2 billion people. Um, I don't need to tell this audience um, of India's astonishing Uh, 20-year economic boom, its vast market, its innovative firms, its democratic governance, of course, and its vital strategic location. It's clear to everyone by now that India is and will be a major international actor for decades ahead. And it's for this reason that Carnegie's top institutional priority is to add a South Asia center to our current global network network. And uh, I'm hoping that uh, a year from now, New Delhi will join those uh, cities uh, in, that, um, in, our, in our network. Um, but India's greatest strength, of course, is its people. It's home to some of the world's finest institutions on science and technology and engineering. It produces great entrepreneurs. Its people, its workers, are in demand at home and abroad. And it has made major strides in, the last, uh, in recent decades in increasing literacy and in reducing poverty. <coughs> but huge challenges, of course, remain so that all of its citizens can thrive in, in the global economy. Here to tackle the question of how the United States and India, with their shared commitment to higher education and to entrepreneurship, can work together to realize that full potential, uh, and to make both countries more competitive and more prosperous. We're very uh, fortunate to have Minister Kapil Sibal, who, among his other responsibilities, oversees India's efforts to build its human capital. He was first elected to Parliament in 1998, and today serves as India's Minister of Human Resource Development, where he has worked tire- tirelessly to ensure that all Indian children have access to a free elementary education. And of course, um, further to uh, strengthen access to secondary and vocational education uh, to complement India's world-class science and technology programs. After Minister Sipal's remarks, we will hear brief comments from Arbind Pasad, Director General of the Federation of Indian Chambers of Commerce and Industry, India's oldest and largest business organization, and then the minister then we will' return to the minister for Q and A uh, from all of you. We're delighted to welcome these two distinguished leaders with us today, and looking forward to uh, what I think will be both an enlightening and important conversation. Minister Sipal. Thank you.: Sorry.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Jessica. Good morning. To you all, um, yeah, we made fantastic progress in the last 20 years. We made enormous strides. Um, our growth rates, considering the downturn in the global economy, are pretty impressive. Uh, but I try, as I try and go to sleep at night, I get worried. <laughs> as to how I'm going to meet the challenges of of the 21st century, how India is going to deal with the enormity of issues that confront us. Democracy has its own pace of moving forward, especially a vibrant uh, democracy like India's, where 1.2 billion people have an opinion on education. Um, To take everybody along with you is no easy task. Um, But there's lots of work to be done. I think we do have great institutions. We've got huge, enormously talented uh, human resource. But if you really look at the next 20 years, I'm really worried as to whether we will be able to achieve a critical mass of people equipped to take India forward uh, to double-digit growth for the next two, three decades. That's the challenge, but 200, and, just the numbers we got, but 220 million children going to school. Um, the access rate uh, at the primary level is oh, you know, 100%. That's not an issue. Um, you go to upper primary, it's, it's pretty in, in in the 90s. And as you move forward, uh, there's a 56% drop, dropout rate. Um, and uh, you go to secondary level, the um, GER is around 70%. You go to upper, higher secondary, it comes down to 35%. And the gross enrollment ratio of children... In the age group of eighteen to twenty three who go to college is seventeen percent, which is ten points lower than the global average um, in other words, if about you, you get a you, you you about have seventeen million odd children going to school are going to college and it's unacceptable in a country where two, over two hundred million children go to school so we have and the high-end quality institutions but the nation's wealth is created through the university system so you need a critical mass of people going into university that's true of all developed countries where the range is between 40 to 70 percent uh, maybe even 35 to 70 percent so the one big challenge that i face as Minister of Human Resource Development, is to how to ensure that enough people go to college to create that critical mass in the university system. What that requires is to, by 2020, my, 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 my uh, target is to increase the gross enrollment ratio from 17, 17 to 30%. So if 17-odd million children go to college, this, the number would be 45 million by 2020, which means an increase of about 30 million. If 604 universities serve serve 17 million kids and 35,000 colleges serve 17 million kids, for another 30 million, I'll need another 800 universities in the next 10 years, and I'll need another 40, 50,000 colleges. That's the, the scale of the challenge. Either I increase enormously the existing capacities of institutions um, or I build new colleges. And I, I think it's impossible for any country to really think of building 800 universities in the next 10 years. So how do you deal with this? This is, this is a big challenge that we have. And the only way to deal with it, according to me, um, is through multi-pronged strategies. You allow a lot of private investment to come into the education sector. Uh, You um, allow the private sector uh, to innovate in order to be able to meet these challenges. And you actually use the ICT revolution to take this forward. India is in the process of building a knowledge network, a dedicated knowledge network. We call it the National Knowledge Network, which will connect all the 644 universities I'm talking about. 400 of them have already been connected. We'll connect all the 35,000 colleges that I just talked about, of which about 17,000, 18,000 have already been connected and through this dedicated knowledge network you can share faculty uh, you can have the best teachers give their courses online and and through connectivity have open source material to improve the quality of, of education. While we are doing this and this will be completed in the next six months, while we do this in the next two and a half years we're going to connect 250,000 gram panchayats through fiber through a fiber optic network and then do the last-mile connectivity through wireless broadband. So we create a national highway where information can flow to institutions in the education sector. And because the nature of the expansion is enormous and at an extremely fast pace, because the demand for going to school is increasing, but on the supply side, there's enormous constraint. And I can't wait for 10 years to build brick-and-mortar institutions. I need to educate my kids as they move into college. Um, So I need to use innovative ways to do that. So that also uh, brings about enormous opportunities for the private sector through ICT to provide uh, um, materials to students, open source material to students to be able to, so that they can actually empower themselves through this. Um, So that's one side of the picture. Uh, the IIT system itself is producing about 1,100 open open courses, which are at the moment in the process of of of, of being accessed by these students, um, and therefore we are expanding the communication sector in a big way, because we believe that in the absence of connectivity between uh, the communication the technologies and 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 education, uh, we're not going to be able to reach there. But having said that, you're talking about over 220 million children who go to school. So you take care of uh, 40 odd million, 45 million kids who may go to college. Uh, what about the balance? You have another 150 to deal with. Uh, now that requires um, opportunities for them to skill themselves because they are not they are not going to reach um, college or go to university. They don't. They they don't they're not going to go for a medical degree or an engineering degree which are very popular degrees in India so they need to be skilled and there again there is this uh, enormous challenge because while India moves forward at a pace of six to seven percent in the worst of times and hopefully this will reach double digit in the best of times uh, there is obviously enormous demand in the market for skilled people but there is not enough supply of skilled people. So how do you then um, look at, take the, use the demographics in India to, our, to, 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 to your advantage by skilling these people? That in turn requires uh, enormous investment by the private sector in skill development programs. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the moment the FDI is 100% in education in India. As long as a foreign institution doesn't grant a degree, it can set up any programs they want to set up um, uh, in the various skills that are required uh, to take the economy forward. Um, And so we are unveiling in this academic year the National Vocational Education Qualification Framework where we are starting skill development in Class 9 through Class 12 at certain levels, we call it certification levels one to four. One from class nine, two, and class 10, three, and four, up to class 12. From class 10, you can go on to a polytechnic, and then from there, you can actually move on to the university. And there's gonna be enough enough flexibility in the system for kids to move from skills to academics or academics to skills as the case may be. Uh, And for that, we've had to work with industry at very close quarters because we've had industry design the syllabi for students uh, in the skills development framework. And what we have is we have a national um, um, skill development corporation set up in the finance ministry through a policy decision that was taken by the government of India. They have identified about over 20 skills uh, which are required, which are going to be required uh, through human resource in the economy. Um, in the years to come. And then under that we have skill s- sector councils. Um, and skill sector councils actually are collaborating with us, with academics, uh, to create those courses uh, by setting occupational uh, outcomes and standards. Um, national occupational standards and so when you clear a particular occupational standard you get a certificate level one or two as the case may be so it's based on outcomes Um, and then the employer uh, has the certainty of of a prospective employee having a particular skill at a certain certification level so that he is sure of those skills and therefore employability becomes much much more easy uh and 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 uh the demand is met through this process. Uh and as we move up we we we're gonna empower the polytechnics and we're gonna have a BSC program in skill development, so BSC vocational, uh, so that even in the universities uh vocation because of course this is not an easy task because in the past uh the the kids who did not or were not outstanding Uh, Would go into vocational studies, so the the, their acceptance in society is relatively low uh, as compared to those who actually uh, take a professional qualification in the university system. So we need to change the mindset uh, of 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 the community. Uh, And they have to accept the fact that people who are skilled are as important to civil society as those who take on professional courses and, 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 and a career at a later point in time. So that's a challenge which I'm sure we'll be able to meet because when these kids get absorbed in industry... Uh, and, uh, and and get, an, get, an, get a good salary automatically uh, civil society will start accepting these particular courses. Uh, the challenge, therefore, is a quality orientation to ensure this, these national occupational standards are followed um, and But again, the challenge here again is where do we have the faculty, both in terms of the expansion in the higher education sector and expansion in the skill development sector, there is an enormous uh, paucity of faculty. Uh, where do we get the faculty from? And there again, we need to use the ICT network uh, in order to access faculty till such time as we are able to bring faculty on board through regular, uh, uh, through, through, through regular recruitment processes. This applies to higher education as well. Um, we are uh, Simultaneously working with very, very uh, frugal innovations and technologies to be able to reach these goals, one of the things we've been able to do uh, uh, is launching of what, uh, of a tablet called the Akash. Uh, The Akash is a tablet with the cost of which is around hopefully $35 Um, and it all, it has a capacitive screen, uh, a processor with about 800 megahertz capacity Uh, and all kinds of uh, software um, applications which are inbuilt in the Akash. Uh, As I talked to you, the design uh, and the technology will be frozen this month, and now we need to start looking at manufacturers from all over the world uh, to be able to manufacture this tablet. And if I'm able to supply these tablets to kids in higher education, then the tablet becomes the platform, a very... Uh, a very um, accessible, affordable platform for all kinds of educational material uh, that the child can receive on this tablet. So in a sense, there's no one size fit all solution. Um, uh, But of course, I think the revolution in technology is gonna change uh, the way we find these solutions. We have now uh, cloud computing, uh, which we're embracing. Uh, we've've we 've we've set up data centers in india uh, where uh, because one of the big problems in any skill development program and in higher education is that each institution seeks to uh, needs to invest a lot of money uh, in all uh, for all kinds of Uh, hardware and software in order to be able to teach its children. But with these data centers that are being set up through public-private partnerships, what we're doing is we allow a private entrepreneur to set up a data center. He sets up a data center for the public sector and for the private sector, anybody who wants wants to have data stored at a particular place. And this data then can serve certain regions of India. Um, so what, you, what, what ideally happens is you have a data center. All the investments are made by the private sector. Uh, the government only gives him space. He invests the refrigeration facilities. Uh, he invests in the hardware for storage of data. He invests in the skilled workforce. And, and what he does then is he provides that data to anybody who needs it in the region. And what he does is he charges a small rental for it so each university and each educational institution doesn't have to replicate storage of data so it saves them a lot of investment right and it can access whatever kinds of data it wishes to access on a small rental and it can access what it wants to access so that gives enormous flexibility to the student community at a very low cost to be able to access course materials and uh, uh, other stuff that they wish to use in the course of their education and to empower themselves. And uh, again, uh, if you want through skill development, uh, you know, The classical way for developing skills is to have uh, an industry uh, set up a center where the machines are located and the children actually go and try out on the machines, which is part of their skill development program. Whereas that needs to be done now through technology, we can simulate all that. You know, you have simulations for those who want to fly airplanes. You can't have airplanes uh, to be given to them to take a chance on the flight. Uh, You have simulators who uh, allow kids to get um, experienced in flying an airplane. Similarly, through simulation programs, uh, a lot of these machines can be worked on by students no matter where they are located. And this can be part of the data center. So a lot of the skill development can take place through this process. So in other words, you have to work at different levels to be able to you know, get a, an, an appropriately holistic solution as India moves forward into the 21st century. Um, it, it's not an easy task. Uh, it's a monumental task. Uh, but uh, what it tells you is that there are enormous opportunities out there um, for, 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 for the market to find solutions uh, to very, very unique problems which only a country like India faces. I mean, just I'll just give you uh, just a taste of some of these issues. Uh, we have about 18, 18 scheduled languages uh, in India. In other words, if I go to the state of Tamil Nadu, um, I don't understand their local language, and most children uh, understand their own mother tongue. They don't necessarily uh, are, are familiar with Hindi uh, in any substantive way. So if you want to give them course material, it has to be in their language. It can't possibly be in English, uh, because there's no way that they will be able to uh, understand it and access it. And so if you have such 18 such scheduled languages, the courseware, in all the states will have to be in the local language. Apart from the fact that these are the scheduled languages, there are about uh, 2,500 dialects that are spoken across. And a lot of these people speak different dialects. You know, How do you then develop software to be able to translate all this stuff into the language of the user? Uh, you need a lot of technology solutions for that. So what I'm trying to say is that whereas the classical way of moving forward is to set up institutions to get teachers into classrooms and have teachers teach the children. I don't think that we can do that in the 21st century. I think we need to look to, you know, uh, solutions which are out of the box through frugal innovations, which I, which I think is at the heart of our national strategy as India moves forward to cam- combat some of these challenges. We also feel And this is something that I would like to address this audience, uh, um, that the nature of mindset of the global community must also change. Uh, You in in the United States of America are now uh, in the midst of, of in a sense, a very, very serious issue of of $1.7 trillion of unpaid unpaid student education loans. Um, The cost of education is very expensive in the United States of America. Oh, it's true, it's the cost of service is also very expensive in the United States of America. The cost of manufacturing is also very expensive. So you decided um, as a good solution to move manufacturing out to China and move services out to India. Um, and why, why, why did that happen? It happened because it was a good economic model you realize that it was not possible to sustain high-cost service solutions uh, because the american economy will not be able to absorb them and therefore it's important to move on to a low to co- move to a, a low-cost ecosystem which provides you the solutions that you can use for your customers back in the united states of america because that's a, that's a good economic model to work with but i'm afraid this is going to happen with education the same thing that happened with manufacturing and that happened with services is gonna happen with education. Uh, uh, it's not, you know, what you're looking for here is more and more students coming to India. And if you have 100,000 students coming to India, it's a drop in the ocean, because you've got 220 million out there who at some stage or the other will require some skills and have to go to university. So it's much. it makes much greater sense for the university system to reach the consumer rather than the consumer accessing the university system, just as it happened in services and just as it happened in manufacturing. Because with the same top dollar investment, you in fact are able to empower thousands of more children than you would because the nature of costs uh, are much greater in this part of the world. And therefore, it makes good sense for educational institutions and for American students in the times to come to actually go to a management course in a an institution which is located in India rather than have to study management in the United States of America But it will cost you one-third the amount. Uh, and this is true of engineering. This will be true of many other things uh, because it just makes better sense as long as you have the same quality of education. And the same quality of education can now be easily provided with the communications revolution that's taking place. So you can have your twinning arrangements with universities. You can have your uh, arrangements of joint degrees with institutions. You can can also, in times to come, once the policy framework is in place, have standalone institutions and award degrees uh, which are as... uh, as, uh, in terms of quality as good as any degree anywhere in the world. And I suspect that in times to come, uh, this is, this is going to happen. It is also ha- already happening in medical tourism, where lots of people from all over the world are coming to India because they just cannot afford uh, to be treated in this part of the world because it's far too expensive. And it's going to happen in education. And therefore, in a sense, we are truly moving uh, to a global community. And, and dealing with global aspirations of, of ordinary folks who cannot uh, afford the kind of um, elite institutions uh, that require you uh, to pay enormous amounts of money through student loans, which, in case, which also are a great burden on the economy. So I think globally we have to change the way we think. Globally we'll have to change our mindsets uh, because in a sense we are truly uh, a a global economy in which we rely on each other for a lot of things. Uh, That's happening in trade. It's happening in other areas. But I don't think that process has started in the area of education. And the thought I want to put to you uh, for consideration is the time has come for educational institutions to think somewhat uh, somewhat differently. And uh, whether we like it or not, this is going to happen. We already... Are in the process of 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 setting up what is called a meta university. A meta university is is because I think that the future universities uh, of the world are not necessarily going to be brick and mortar buildings uh, or or physical uh, entities. Uh, they're going to be in cyberspace. Uh, Kids around the world, uh, in different universities, maybe 15, 20 universities, would get together, choose credits and courses from each other, uh, interact with each other through the net, uh, maybe spend six months or odd uh, in in the premises of a particular university, wherever they might want to go to. And at the end of it, uh, get a degree which doesn't belong to one physical entity, but could be a meta-university degree in partnership with various universities. This is happening already in the area of research. Uh, We already are seeing a lot of research which is going on which is entirely global, uh, where um, uh, PhDs and post-doctorates are collaborating with each other uh, across territorial boundaries because we realize that it's impossible to uh, confront the problems of tomorrow um, through systems that are in, put in place today and we to look at collaborative research and I dare say that in times to come we're also going to have uh, uh, doctorates which are which will be collaborative doctorates. In other words students don't have to do one particular issue and earn a doctorate. Five students get together in five different elements of an issue and each of them get a doctorate for that particular element through collaborative research which actually results in a solution. So these are some uh, exciting thoughts uh, that, 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 that we need to uh, cogitate upon as we move forward. Um, the challenges are huge. So are the opportunities. And life is always interesting. Thank you.
3: Honorable Human Resource Development Minister, Mr. Kapil Sibbal, President President Carnegie Endowment, Jessica T. Matthews, Secretary Higher Education, Government of India, Mr. Ashok Thakur, members of Indian Higher higher Education Delegation, ladies and gentlemen, I am indeed honored to be, to share the stage with Honorable Minister, Mr. Kapil Sibbal. As you all know, under his dynamic leadership, Indian education has undergone substantial transformation and several reforms are in the pipeline. He did mention about the difficulties of carrying the people. You know earlier the ministry used to be called Ministry of Education. Now the mandate of educating people about the necessary policy change has also fallen in him. And I'm sure you all appreciate he's doing a extremely good job. And I'm quite many of the changes he is proposing will definitely come in near future. We are also fortunate that Mr. Ashok Thakur has joined us. He has just recently taken as Secretary of Higher Education. We wish him all the best and also assure him that whatever need support he would require from industry bodies like FIKI will always be there to help him. We have very distinguished Indian delegations and audience here. The Honourable Minister uh, given, has given his vision about the Indian education system. And he also outlined the challenges he is facing and the, some ways to address that. Now, as you could see, that it is an enormous capacity enhancement, you know, 17% gross enrollment ratio to 30% in next 10 years. Uh, The expansion, he gave many ways. Obviously, it will require huge private participation. And in addition to the capacity enhancement, the issue of quality also becomes very relevant. As you are aware, in India, we have extremely good technical institutions and we have a large number of engineering colleges. In many cases, our study taken by the FICCI has found the large number of them are not ready for employment. There is a skill gap. So there is a need to address those issues. Unfortunately, we do not have the kind of academic and industry linkage which is desirable there. Now, FIKI is trying to work the model for this. And we have developed a concept called National Knowledge Functional Hub we are trying to will set up the five hub this year. The Planning Commission has also accepted the model and is recommending in twelfth plan to enhance to hundred hubs. The concept is that in different regions, the premium academic institution and premium industry will combine together and will form the hub. And this hub will link link as spokes to different local academic institutions and industries, and which will provide the necessary technical and quality support to the local institutions and also to the local industries. So the premium industry and premium institutions form the hub and in the spoke model, they combine with local industries and local academic institutions to develop the linkage with industries at all levels. This year we'll be focusing on on the capital goods market, that capital goods industry. Because as you are aware, that the top engineering students or te- technical institutions, generally the students go for service sectors. In the manufacturing, the most of the students who come for the manufacturing job come, for, come from tier two, tier three engineering colleges. So these are the engineering colleges which requires or technical institutions who requires focused linkage with the industry to develop their the internship, their their capabilities, functional capabilities to meet the skill gap. Uh, This, the knowledge hub, once the model is developed, uh, it can be scaled up. Uh, The the foreign universities and the top industries can also combine with the hub to bring the best practices around the world uh, for the linkages between the industry and the academic institutions. The, the challenge, second stage of challenge, the honourable minister mentioned that even if you succeed in providing for the higher education for 30 percent, you are still left with a large number of people who needs a skill to economically participate in the economic activities, productively participate in the economic activities, and a skill development. Focus on a skill development is the right thrust, as he developed, I explained the model. The difficulties in India right now is the lack of flexibility where the students or the persons can move from skills to the education. Because to begin with, students or people don't want to go to their skill in the early stage. Because uh, for our social consideration, for academy, they want to have the best education possible. Only at the latest stage, uh, if they are, do not succeed, in the academic world, they want to go for a skill. If it provides the flexibility in the early stage, go, people go for the skill, they succeed, they have an opportunity to go to the colleges, and similarly, vice versa, then this flexibility will give the necessary boost to the skill students opting for the skill development from the early stage. Now, in, th- in this situation, the university, the USA model of community college is a very good model. and. Uh, it is very fortunate that the Government of India under his dynamic leadership is trying to work out a framework to develop the community college and the industry will be very happy to participate in it. In the skill development, uh, as it is today, the many corporates like NFS, Jindal and many foundation like Vadwani Foundation, Sivnadar Foundation, they are working very, very good on the skill development. Many of them are here in the delegations. Uh, once the framework of community college becomes clear, uh, they will very happily participate in that also. Um, Honourable Minister mentioned about the skill development council. FICI is uh, actively participating and we are setting up of seven skill development councils to bring the modules which will be necessary, required for the industry and the linkage with the industry is established from the very beginning, both for accreditation and certification. Because, you know, for the skills, you need to have a a certification mechanism, which is recognized world over. Because many a times, many people from India move to USA or other countries with necessary skill sets, but due to lack of certifications, they often have to, they are denied the skill jobs. So the industry is working through this skill development councils, they develop the model of accreditation and certifications which will be very helpful in expanding the scale the Honourable Minister has in his mind. Uh, the Honourable Minister has mentioned about the PhDs and the research. Now uh, in, the, in India, many a times the innovative work, uh, there are mechanism to take it to the market, because entrepreneurship and the, the developing the research innovative work to the, the business model is quite often lacking. Now, FIKI has joined hands with Department of Science and Technology in Government of India, also the IC2 Institute in Texas University and Lockheed Martin, and they have developed a program what called India Innovative Innovation growth program in which the innovations that are invi- they are supported for their they are evaluated for their marketability they are trained for communication for funding for you know communicating to different stakeholders and the scheme has been very doing very well uh, we also need a model of sharing resources for research uh, at this stage most of the research funding comes from the government. Now we have we have joined hand with U.S. aid, and we have developed a program called Millennium Alliance. We will be launching next April, next month, formally, in which the funding uh, from the techn- technology development board, from USAID aid, and from the private sector will come to identify innovative ideas and products which can be scaled up, which we, which can be taken up on a very critical. Uh, areas of development of energy security, food security. Uh, uh, Honorable Minister has grand, grand thoughts and he has mentioned about grand, very great difficulties and the scaling up all these activities. I assure the um, Minister that whatever exciting thoughts he, have, he has, we all be there to support in all his endeavors. Thank you so much. Thank you.
1: Okay, we're going we're gonna to turn now to, uh, you're going to do it from the, okay. Um, we're going to turn to questions now, and uh, let me start. Uh, please introduce yourself.
0: Thank you very much, uh, George Stragnitz with uh, North Court Limited. Uh, before I retired from the State Department, I had the uh, great honor and privilege of uh, negotiating the science uh, landmark uh, science and technology agreement with India that was uh, six or seven years ago. Minister Sybil was the uh, minister. Uh, minister, when you and Jack Marburger, the President Bush's science advisor, signed the agreement, it was full of promise. Obviously, six or seven years later, it certainly ties into what you're talking about. I'd be, and you're here in a U.S. audience. I'd be interested to to hear how this the science and technology agreement has worked with India. But also, in terms of the ficky relationship, the fact that you 're here together suggests to me that you're looking for some inward investment into in, uh, possibly into India, and certainly in the education field, this is a logical area and and you would know just from from reading the uh, the Western press, the Financial Times economist and, and our own here in the u s that there are some disillusionments with. Uh, foreign investment in, in India, that the, there's been certain policy decisions that suggest that India is less welcome to foreign investment than before. I'd be interested if you could address those two sure. points. Thank um, you, sir.
2: Okay. Let me let – me, the two parts to your question. What is uh, the relationship or the, that was forged six, seven years ago um, uh, between the science and technology ministry? How has that sort of impacted – well, quite frankly, I mean, I've, I lost that portfolio in 2009. Um, and I really don't know what's hap- happened between 2009 and 2012. Um, but I know for a fact that the kind of collaboration that is going on uh, between the two departments um, uh, is enormous in, 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 in multifarious fields. Um, um, uh, in the field of healthcare in particular. Uh, not so much in education, but certainly in healthcare, in advanced materials, um, uh, in the IT sector. Uh, so all those collaborations are going on. I don't know the specifics. Uh, I'm afraid because I, I, I don't have the data with me on that. Uh, on the second question uh, of of of, um, of uh, encouraging private investment to come to India, uh, I I don't understand why. People have the impression that foreign investment is unwelcome in India, um, and there is no reason uh, for, for, the, for that uh, impression to have been created. Uh, quite frankly, as far as the education sector is concerned, uh, there have been no... It's FDI is 100% in education, and this is much before the year 2012. Um, and so while... Uh, This impression has grown in 2012. What happened prior to 2012 where there is no such impression? Why did foreign investment not come to India in the education sector? I think you guys need to answer that question rather than I. Is it a hesitation at this end uh, to come to India? Uh, Because there is FDIs 100% even today. Uh, in, 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 in education, for skill development, anybody can set up any kind of program in India in collaboration with industry. Uh, no questions are asked. As long as you give a certificate or a diploma uh, in the absence of a degree, no questions are asked. Uh, and yet the fact of the matter is that there is no foreign direct investment uh, that comes into India. So the reason must be other uh, than what you've cited, because that happened only in 2012. No direct investment was coming in prior to that. Uh, so I think that we need to put our minds together to figure it out. And I can give you the reason why it's not happened. The reason is quite simply this, that uh, take, for example, the automobile sector, uh, where enormous uh, growth has taken place. There is very little automobile industry uh, in the United States of America which has invested in India. Uh, most of the industry is either from Germany or from or, or from Japan or from South Korea, uh, and so the, the the stakeholders are not American, so you don 't have the kind of investment in skill development in the automobile sector. Take healthcare care uh, similarly uh, is the case of healthcare, whereas a lot of investment of American companies went into europe it 's only recently. Uh, and mostly East Europe. It's only recently now that that investment is moving uh, into India. But there again, uh, there, is, there are enormous capacities available there and there is a lot of joint ventures going on between multinationals, uh, um, pharmaceutical multinationals and multinationals in India and, and um, companies in India where a lot of skills are being created. But I don't think there is again, again much investment in the education sector in the course of that skill development. But there is not that much investment either. If you look at uh, some of the other sectors, IT, uh, you take a telecom, which are the big telecom companies in India, a lot of foreign companies in India, not a sing- single American telecom company in India. Uh, and uh, <laughs> the other foreign companies in India are either from uh, Europe, Norway, uh, in, in particular... Qualcomm. Uh, yes, Qualcomm is now entered the market. Now enter the market and is tied up, I believe, with uh, Bharti, with Airtel, uh, and, and they are moving forward. and they are investing. It's not an issue. But I, I still cannot fathom why the opportunities available in India are not being used by American entrepreneurs in education. because remember this, again, and I come back to the same issue, if you invest100,000 uh, dollars or one million dollars in the United States of America to produce skills in a certain section, for a certain sector with the same investment in the same sector, you produce three times the number of human resource, the amount of human resource. Uh, And you can then access that human resource for your own market and leave the rest for the absorption capacity of the market in India. So in other words, with the same investment, with the same dollar investment, your output is much greater. Why industry has not taken that opportunity, I still cannot fathom. But I think the time has now come for industry to be making that investment, and it will happen. Uh, but people should realize that the tw- in the 21st century, you have to work somewhat differently. But I think it's a change of, it's a change of mindset, which I mentioned earlier, that is required. Take, for example, community colleges. We have been mentioned about community colleges. We're going to set up a hundred community colleges from the next from 2013. And, and a uh, hundred community colleges, and we've been working with the U.S. Uh, in that area. Uh, we had a, a delegation of education ministers coming here, and they fully endorsed the idea. Now, those can easily be set up through through, through joint ventures without any problem. Uh, uh, but I think we need to work more in the area with the industry. Uh, you need to actually in situ come to India to be able to make that investment. See, gone are the days when you can make investments into sectors of the economy sitting in the United States of America. You have to be where the problem is and know the ground reality and then decide for yourself what is the nature of that investment. And I think uh, the, 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 the fact that, you know, we're a distance away and the fact that there's not enough Americans traveling to India for, taking, for, for, for understanding the ground reality and using those opportunities is really the only reason why this has not taken place, because the, uh, right. the market ha- is there.
1: We have maybe what I'd like to do, if it's all right with you, uh, is take two or three sure, questions, sure. and uh, because there are so many. Let's do these three, and then uh, we'll turn back, please.
4: Irina um, Akimushkina, journalist and uh, social scientist, uh, consultant. Uh, first of all, uh, thank you, Carnegie for such an interesting panel. And, um, Minister, I have uh, several questions. Maybe one. Uh, huh? One, okay. <laughs> so, uh, my question is about uh, um, uh, primary, elementary education in India, and... Uh, uh, you know uh, that such countries as Uruguay and Portugal, uh, they uh, uh, delivered computers to every uh, child at school. I understand, I am quite realistic that uh, these countries are different in size and population, but uh, I would like to ask you, uh, if we speak about uh, rural remote areas maybe with electricity, how, uh, maybe average uh, number, how many uh, elementary schools in India are equipped with computer uh, computers? Okay. Oh, very few, very
2: few, very few, okay. very few. That's precisely why I mentioned in the opening address that we are now connecting two, two 250,000 gram panchayats mm-hmm. with fiber optics in the next two and a half years, when that happens, and we'll provide the last mile connectivity through wireless broadband. Then every 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 nook and corner of India, corner of India, will be connected. Um,
1: okay, uh, there was a question right here. Go, please. Right there.
0: Okay. Uh, thank you, Minister.
1: Uh, I'm Meghaswami from Sister Cities International. We're a membership organization of US cities that twin with cities all over the world. And obviously, our members have uh, Indian sister cities. Uh, We recently signed an MOU with uh, the All India Institute of Local Self Government. And I know there's a lot of demand, um, for example, from the mayor of Mumbai, uh, from the mayor of Pune, who asked for IT training from their sister city, San Jose. So I was wondering if you could, um, you know, maybe what is the role of Sub- sub-national partnerships in furthering uh, technical or jobs, job skills-based university-level exchanges. Thank you. And the gentleman at the camera. This is Tejinder Singh from India, America Today. Uh, you mentioned uh, fleetingly about IIT, but uh, there is a question about IIT, Kanpur Senate has uh, decided not <laughs> to comply with your decision and uh, some other iits are set to follow uh, and the iit alumni and the iit foundation has also protested how do you justify going ahead with your iit reforms and the second question is you mentioned 100 hundred community colleges will there be infrastructure for them and I- or will they be in cyberspace if infrastructure no no will there
2: be infrastructure d-
1: how how do you plan to build that in a year
2: or oh, let me ask the, same, the less controversial one first and then the more
4: controversial <laughs> one
2: later. Okay, as far as the community colleges is concerned, of course, we need physical infrastructure for that. You can't have a community college in cyberspace, I'm afraid. At least that time will, is yet to come. But what we're doing is, the, 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 broad, the broad concept is the following. You, you look at clusters. You say, take, you go, go to a city like Ludhiana, which is in Punjab. You have the textile cluster there. So a lot of thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of textile workers work in that city. Now their children are obviously familiar because their parents are working in the textile industry. And so the schools around that cluster uh, should start teaching skills in the textile sector. Uh, There's no point setting up a community college uh, uh, in, in, in an area where where that particular skill is not required. So you are, we are going to identify skills, and that will be done essentially by state governments and by local bodies in various parts of the country, and then we'll take the schools around those areas uh, and and because then the absorption capacity of the industry will also be easily available. So the admissions will be of students... Who are working in the textile uh, who are working around the textile sector, so that the capacity, uh, in, the increasing capacity of the textile sector can serve, um, uh, can be served by these students. And this will apply uh, to, uh, to small scale industries in Muradabad and other parts of the country, uh, which will apply to the automobile sector in Pune and apply to the automobile sector in Chennai, for example the pharmaceutical sector in 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 uh, in uh, in hyderabad and around that area so the community colleges will be built around uh, where the demand for industry is and these will be physical infrastructures and we'll wait for inputs from state governments to be able to do that uh, on the first question that you that that you asked about the iits uh, quite frankly this is not uh, the minister's decision, this is a decision of the unanimous decision of the council. The IIT council consisted of the um, IIT – all the IIT directors and chairmen. Uh, then we had the IIIT council representatives there, and we have the NIT council's representatives there. So all of them uh, decided unanimously uh, for a particular course of action. Um, so when you ask me the question, your reforms, This is the. there is an IIT Act. In terms of the IIT Act, there is an IIT Council. In terms of that Act, the Council is entitled to take certain decisions uh, by virtue of the statute. The Council has taken those decisions. Uh, now, I don't know what the exact um, uh, objection to it is. Uh, I'll go back and find out the exact nature of the address, objection and will surely uh, address it. But one thing I want to make clear, that that there is no intent to impact on the IIT system's autonomy. Uh, That's quite clear. The academic autonomy of the IIT system uh, has to be maintained and must be maintained. And the exam that is being uh, contemplated is going to be set by the IIT by the IIT, not by government, not by anybody else. It is the JAB, the Joint Admissions Board, which will actually uh, set the examination. So one thing should be made clear, we have no desire uh, to in any way, either directly or indirectly. In fact, I am a great uh, supporter of autonomy and I have uh, brought in uh, many, um, taken many steps uh, to protect uh, the autonomy of not just the IIT system, but all educational institutions. One second, one second, sir. One second. Don't be in a hurry. Okay, so that's on the... The other thing that needs to be addressed is children in India. Um, take the United States of America. Okay, there is one SAT exam in the United States. Okay. Harvard doesn't have a separate admission test. Stanford doesn't have a separate admission test. Right? Uh, No other university has a separate admission test. You have an SAT exam, and then you have the uh, school exams. And the university decides by looking at those results as to which student to admit and who not to admit, right? Take the the United Kingdom. You have the A-levels, right? There is no separate exam for Oxford. There is no separate exam for Cambridge. And there is no separate exam in any university. You have the A-levels, and the A-levels are then taken into account for the admission process. Right? In India, children have to sit for 30 different exams. Each child has to look for a university or a college and say, look, I, I, he has to sit for 30, 35 exams, which means he has to file, he has to submit about 30, 35 applications. He has to file security deposits for all those applications. And the mere mental stress and torture of having to go to 30, 35, 40 exams, I think it's something that's not fair uh, to the parents as well as to the children, right? And then the other thing is that the school system must be be accorded its integrity. Uh, The Class 12 board is a very important milestone uh, in the life of a child, and how he does in the Class 12 board is exceptionally important. And I think that any process of admission should take that into account. Right. So these are our objectives. Uh, but if someone says that look, uh, the uh, the autonomy of the IATB is is, is, is is being jeopardized, uh, I would respectfully beg to differ. Uh, but if if I am enlightened more on how it is jeopardized, I, I'm always uh, you know open to 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 to. Uh, to to be further empowered. Um, uh, and, of course, if someone says that the school system is irrelevant, um, I, I again would bet to differ. And we can certainly uh, have, a, have a discourse on that. But let me tell you again, this is nothing to do with government. It is something that the IIT council under the statute decided, which is a council consisting of, 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 of the directors of all the IIT systems.
1: Oh, that's it. No, no, if, that's if a, that's you it, could, that's there are it. so that's many it. questions. Let, let me I've try answered, to give others a chance. I think
2: chance. I've answered as fully as I could your question.
1: Uh, sir? Uh, sir? Can I ask you please to follow up afterwards? There's a lady back here and and also over here. Right? Um, uh, you know, you have a, a very demanding job, and um, none of us in America can even imagine the scale. So, you know, we wish you luck in what you're doing. Uh, this builds a little bit on the question about the twelfth grade exam and it sort of goes a little bit lower though what are you thinking in terms of some kind of national benchmark either in pre- primary school how does that relate to middle school and high school since they're not necessarily under federal control and what are you thinking about middle school and high school um, closing the you know enrollment gap what's your strategy around that
2: what well, it's, it's a it's, a, it's <laughs> <One second. yeah. laughs> You know recently we passed what is called the right to education act which uh, which is, which is a constitutional guarantee for all children in India to receive free elementary education uh, in the act itself uh, we we say that um, that uh, the teacher must be more more integrated with the progress of the child through comprehensive and continuous evaluation. So the child must be evaluated not just for his capability of understanding a text, but evaluated uh, in a holistic manner. Uh, what are his communication skills? Uh, how is he developing as, as a pers- as a personality? What are his interests? Um, uh, but but. Uh, because we're in a federal structure, we can't possibly have one examination system uh, you know, to determine the quality of education that is imparted. And each state has its separate board um, which looks at all these things. So the, under the Right to Education Act, the, uh, the, 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 the child is to be assessed uh, on, on several, at, at several levels and that assessment has to be left uh, uh, to, to the school system itself we don't interfere in that process and we should not because the federal government the union of india has no right to interfere education is in the concurrent list over which both the state and the government we can set standards we can say look the 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 a teacher who teaches in school whether it's uh, primary or upper primary, must have a B.Ed. qualification or a D.Ed. qualification. We can set the qualification standards. We, we can't do more than that. The recruitment has to take place at the state level and at the local level. We can't have anything, we don't have anything to do with that. So we try and control quality by, 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 by delineating the contours of education and by checking on the quality of teaching and the quality of teachers by saying that they should have a minimum degree. Other than that, there is no way to control it. But of course, as you move out of elementary education, uh, you have um, the 10th board examination under some systems. Uh, the CBSE uh, has abolished it or made it optional. And then, of course, you have the final 12th board exam, uh, which is, it was the subject matter of this question as well. And that's a 12th board exam, which is conducted by sep sub- states uh, every state conducts a 12th board exam uh, and those which are affiliated with the cbse system the cbse um, the council for the board of secondary education consults, conducts an exam and those exam results are then taken into account for admissions into the into the university system that's that's the nature of how we deal with this issue but the union government cannot be uh, setting standards for state governments for awarding uh, you know deciding on, on the quality Uh, Though we want to improve quality to different ways, uh, we are trying to, for example, uh, have a core curriculum for science, uh, which all state boards have accepted. So now everybody teaches through the core curriculum, but the nature of teaching has to be still, is decentralized, it has to be decided at the school level. How How you teach that core curriculum, you have to decide. But the core curriculum is the basis of teaching in all boards now. We're going to do that with commerce and we will do that with arts as well at a later point in time. So that uh, there is a definite standard on the basis of which children actually uh, sit for the class 12 board.
1: I'm afraid we have just one more and that please.
4: Hi, I really enjoyed your presentation. Um, I'm wondering in the case of agricultural education, if that's uh, going to be integrated in your strategy in <coughs> terms of knowledge management, yes. um, research, and science and technology?
2: Well, absolutely. Agriculture, because as you know, most of India is rural, and lots of people live in the rural areas, and two thirds uh, are doing agriculture. And so, agriculture should be part of the skill framework that I was talking about. Not just agriculture fisheries, you know, fishermen, uh, uh, small-scale sector. Um, and, uh, and then you tie into even adult education. You, we, ha- we have a national adult education program in which we're trying to empower about 70 million uh, uh, adults, of which 60 million will be women. And we have these adult education centers uh, with, uh, where, where we give them vocational training. So a- as we are trying to educate our young, we're also trying to educate our old. Uh, and there you get a lot of these programs uh, on, on weather systems, on, on, on the nature of, of, of seeds, what kind of seeds to sow, um, and, and others, uh, and what time of the year should you go to the market to sell your produce, and stuff like that. And a lot of this information will be actually accessed by individuals on the mobile phone. We want to make the mobile phone not an instrument of communication, but an instrument of empowerment. So that he gets, he or she gets all kinds of information on the mobile phone. When it's likely to rain, when you should harvest, you know, when you should go and catch the fish, uh, what is the amount of chlorophyll in the ocean at a given point in time where you'll get your fish so you can get that fish. All that information and, uh, you know, and then of course your public services, uh, you know, your account, your bank account and all that stuff will be uh, accessed through your mobile phone. And of course the Akash.
0: On
2: yes, On sub-national collaboration side, we'd welcome all that, and it's an, an, an enormous uh, uh, empowering uh, tool, actually. Uh, but that happens, uh, that will happen at that level that you talked about, and we would encourage it.
1: Minister, you, uh, you carry clearly one of the most daunting portfolios anybody can imagine, also one of the most exciting and one of the most important for the future of the world. We thank you for taking the time to share your thoughts with us. It's been enormously interesting. My apologies to everybody, I couldn't tell.